Uh, we were looking at the water to wine in John chapter 2. And now we're going to jump to John chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 46, if you have your word with you, and you can follow along. <clears throat> he, being Jesus, went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come down from Judea into Galilee, he went with him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, since he was about to die. And Jesus told him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, Come down before my son dies. Go, Jesus told him, Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. And while he was still going down, his servants met him, saying that his boy was alive. He asked him at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. And the father realized this was the very, very hour which Jesus had told him, Your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea into Galilee. Let's just kind of walk through this and we'll, we'll see what we can take from it, what God asked for us this morning. John begins with this encounter in verse 46 to remind us of what had taken place, what we looked at last week. He's connecting these miracles, or as John writes in the Gospels, he calls them signs. Signs that Jesus is God and they are equal, His deity. And so he's pointing back to the first one, just kind of connect the two events. But there's a lot that has happened from the water to wine incident to this incident here in John chapter 4. First off, Jesus, in his public ministry, went to his very first Passover in his public ministry. He would have gone to Passover every single year growing up as a Jewish man or Jewish boy. But in the midst of his ministry, the first one is recorded in John. And it's in that encounter where we have the conversation with Nicodemus. And we have probably one of the most famous verses out of all of Scripture in John 3.16. From there, Jesus travels to Samaria in which he encounters a woman at a well who's kind of an outcast of society. But through this woman and through this encounter with Jesus, salvation comes to Samaria. And then finally, we, we come here into chapter 4 at the very end of it. And I say that because Jesus has begun to build some hype. He's begun to get a following. And I don't know about you, but hype is a good thing and hype can be a bad thing. Uh, there's been a lot of things been hyped in my life, like movies or books, and some of them live up to the hype. But isn't it disappointing when you go see a movie you're really excited about and it's just, it just bombs? You just feel like you wasted your life. You never get that time back. You don't know why you spent that money. And I guarantee you don't talk about it. Well, Jesus was getting good hype. And people were talking about this guy named Jesus because the way he spoke and the way he taught was with authority. And people were drawn to him. The things he did wasn't like the other religious leaders. And, and, and he seemed like he was a part of the people. He, he came for the people. And so people started flocking to him. He had some good hype. He had some good publicity. But one thing Jesus makes clear throughout his ministry, and particularly in John, and we'll deal with the, the comment here in a second in this passage, is he did not want people to see him as a fad. He did not want people to see him some sort of sideshow or some sort of form of entertainment. Jesus wanted people to understand that he came to make God known and to make God's kingdom come into people's lives. And so as he is traveling, he comes to Cana once again, and we are told there's a man who is a royal official who hears that Jesus is in Cana. And so Jesus has been doing miracles and doing these things. And so his son is ill. We don't know what he has. All we know is he has a fever and he's on the brink of death. And so like any father, can you imagine when your kids are, are sick, you just feel so helpless. 
You feel like, what am I going to do? You feel like maybe you did something wrong. I remember the first time that when Ethan and, and Abby both got sick, more so with Ethan because he was the first one and you know, we were just new parents. And you just feel like, what, what do I do? I mean, he had a fever and, and we couldn't get him to, to settle down and to go to sleep and he was crying and just snotty and coughing. What do you do? You just feel hopeless. So you call mom, right? Well, this man didn't have a phone to call mom, but he did hear of a man named Jesus that was 20 miles away. And so this royal official got up and went to go get Jesus. Now, this is huge because when he is a royal official, it tells us a little about this individual. He is a man in a place of authority, most likely some sort of connection to, to Herod's court. And being a royal official... He summoned people to him. He didn't go to people. He told people, you come to me and, and I will deal with you. It also lets us know that this man is a Gentile, most likely a Roman, which means that his God was reasoning and logic. And, and in the Greek culture, there were many gods and Caesar was the one above all. But yet here's this man who has all these resources at his fingertips. He has all these gods he can turn to. He has all these things he can run to. And yet he knows the answer is none of these. It's in Jesus. And so he goes to Jesus. And one thing we can learn about this situation and in our relationship with God through this royal official is that we must be humble when we come before God. This man didn't boast in his worldly status or his worldly wealth or his, his title. He humbled himself and he went to Cana to meet Jesus. The Bible tells us in James chapter 4, verse 10, that you humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The word humble means to bring yourself low. And the promise there in Scripture is that when we bring ourselves low, when we realize who we are compared to an almighty God, a holy God, when we, we come to that understanding, we bring ourselves low, low, God will exalt us. God will lift us up. But sometimes we try to do it the other way around. We try to put ourselves in the limelight. We try to pretend like we're in control. We try to make sure that people hear what we have to say. And we end up making a mess. I think we're all aware that we are completely relying upon God, but I think we all could also say that we forget about that at times. We are completely relying upon God in every aspect of our life. And that goes for church, that goes for your family, that goes for your job. I was just thinking about that this week. Um, I've, I've been in the ministry for quite some time now, and I was just sitting down and, and thinking how many Bible lessons, how many times I've preached and teach uh, over the last 17 plus years. I came up with over 2,500. I, I knocked a few out because I, I knew I took some vacation and I got sick. So 2,500. 2,500 different Bible lessons. Of those 2,500 different times I've taught, preached, whatever, I can honestly say that I have spent easily over 10,000 hours in preparation in reading and studying and prayer and in delivery. Now, a man named, by the name of Malcolm Gladwell says, if you spend 10,000 hours at anything in life, you should become a master at it. Meaning I should be able to come up here and rattle anything off and it should be some profound, biblical, godly thing and you'd be like, whoa. But the reality is, 
Every time I open the Word of God and every time I, I, I seek after Him and, and listen to Him, I come to understanding how much I don't know. I hope you have those moments when you're reading through the Word of God, and I hope you've taken that challenge for this year to read through it, and you come across those verses or those phrases, and it's just that epiphany moment. You're like, when did that get there? Those are such incredible moments. That verse has always been there. It's just God just brings it off the page. And one thing I've, I've learned in my time in ministry and in my job is that anytime I try to do it myself, that's when I find myself in a mess. And I understand we're not all preachers and you may not have a ministry title, but the same goes for your job. Whatever you find yourself doing, if you're not humbling yourself before God and relying upon God to do that through you, to give you the power, give you the discernment, give you the knowledge, then you're going to find yourself in a mess. And you're going to find yourself in situations that you never wanted to be in. When it comes to preaching, I am completely relying upon God. I didn't get to do it so much this morning, but just that moment when I know Jackson is typically getting close to the end and I'm getting up to preach, I, I, have to, I have to humble myself before God and say, God, I can't do this. I'm not biblical enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not godly enough to do what you've called me to do in this moment. And, and I don't say that to like, well, look at the preacher. He's so humble. <laughs> no. I have to get to that place because what Scripture says, when I humble myself and I, and I turn myself over to God and allow God to use me however He wants, it's in that God exalts me for no other reason so that I might exalt Him. And I hear it through compliments sometimes. You all tell me, oh, well, that was a great sermon. I don't know why you say it on some sermons and not others, but we'll talk about that in a different time. But, <laughs> but it, 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 it brings me to the reality that this is what my life should look like every aspect, that I should humble myself, that I can't figure it out. I'm just like this royal official. I am hopeless. I am helpless. I am broken. And I need God to mend me. I cannot be the husband to my wife unless I am completely relying upon God that I need to be. I cannot be the father to my kids unless I am completely relying upon God to enable me to do that. I cannot be the steward of the resources that God has given me unless I am completely relying upon God to do that and to give me that discernment. See, when we come to this place in life where we're saying, all right, God, I'm just handing you the keys to everything. Show me what to do. It's in that God exalts us. It's in that God brings himself glory through our actions and how we're treating people. The Bible tells us that the heart of humility leads to exaltation. But what it also does is it keeps us from destruction. If you read through the Old Testament, you read, or if you are reading through the Old Testament, you're going to find this over and over again. When God's people wandered away from God, wandered away from His ways and His word and His leadership, God threatened destruction, His wrath to be poured upon them. And He told them that's what's going to happen if you do this. But every single time when God's people humbled themselves before Him, you know what He did? He relented. See, when we have a humble heart, we receive the blessings of God. And so as a church and as a people, we have to continue to pursue a humble heart because we can't be the church that God needs Harvest Hill to be unless we come before God and say, God, we, we just can't do this. It doesn't matter how big of a church Harvest Hill becomes. It doesn't matter how big the budget becomes, how many people we see saved, how many uh, people we have in attendance on snowy days or on non-snowy days. None of that matters if we don't have a humble heart before the Lord 
saying, God, you have to do this. We are your vessel, we are your church, and you do whatever you want. Humility. My question that I had to wrestle with all week long is, how has my heart been? How has your heart been? You've been prideful? Arrogant? The Bible says in Psalm chapter 51, verse 17, that the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit, and you will not despise a broken and humble heart. This royal official comes to Jesus broken, helpless, hopeless, but he knew this. Jesus had the answer, and Jesus was the key. And so he humbled himself, and he comes to Cana. But did you catch Jesus' response? Look at there in verse 48. <clears throat> so this man who pours out his heart to Jesus, Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Like we saw last week with the water to wine, when Jesus said, woman, it's not my time to do this. It seemed like Jesus is once again reluctant to, to engage in what is happening right here. As this man pours out his heart about his, his son on the verge of death, he says, you know, you just want signs and wonders. That word signs and wonders means a miraculous beyond explanation. Something, an action that only God can do. This man came to Jesus asking for a miracle, asking for him to intervene in his life. And Jesus, for some reason, just says, you know, unless you see it, you're not going to believe. So it made me wonder, why is Jesus so harsh here? Why does it seem throughout Scripture there's times where he just is pretty blunt? I don't know if you like blunt people, but Jesus is pretty blunt sometimes. And, and he seems to kind of blow this guy off. And I believe the answer is, is he wanted to hear how desperate this man, heart, man's heart was. He could have said no because there were people that came to Jesus throughout his ministry who asked Jesus for something, asked for explanation. And when Jesus explained it or Jesus uh, answered their question, there were many who turned away and walked away. We're told in Scripture that there were even disciples, followers of Jesus, not of the twelve, but followers of Jesus who turned away because his teachings were too hard. I wonder if, if this man, when he came to Jesus, Jesus knew his heart, Jesus knew what he was going to do, but Jesus wanted to make sure this man understood what he was asking. I think a lot of times we can come before God in faith, asking God to intervene in our life, but when he doesn't do it on our schedule, when he doesn't do it in our time or the way we think it should happen, you know what we do? We try to fix it. We take action. God, please help me with our bills. God, please help me with our debt. God, please help me raise my kids. And, and then when God doesn't seem to answer right then, right there, all right, I guess I got to do it. This man came to Jesus, and do you know what he asked? He didn't ask just for healing. He pleaded with Jesus to come to his house to heal his son. Did Jesus go? No. All he told him after the man pleaded one more time in verse 49, come down before my boy dies, all Jesus says is go, your son will live. And that in the Greek, it literally means go, your son lives. He is alive right now. All this man had to go on was Jesus' word. No one came from his house to tell him his son was better. No one came from his house to say, you know what, it's a, it's a miracle. He just, he started moving around and everything's good. He had to just trust Jesus. And what we learn about this is faith requires action. We cannot please God without faith, the Bible tells us in Hebrews. In James chapter 2, it says, if faith, if it does not have works, is dead. 
In other words, we can say we trust God. We can say we lay our prayers before God. We can say that He is our Lord and He is our Savior and we believe He created everything. But if it's not seen in our life, then we really don't have faith. Jesus called this bearing fruit. And so in our life and the way we live and how we go out in the world, people see either faith coming out of us or a lack of faith coming out of us. This man had two signs of faith. The first one is he went to Jesus. He believed Jesus could do something. The second one is when Jesus spoke, he trusted what Jesus said. Jesus said, go, and this man went. Do we trust this? There are things in this, in this book. I don't know about you, but man, they make me uncomfortable sometimes. Because I read it and I see how far I still have to go. I see how, how, how badly I mess up, how, how I have a lack of faith sometimes. How I hear what God specifically is telling me what to do and what not to do, how to handle myself, how to talk, how not to talk, how to treat people, how to handle my finances, how to raise my kids, how to, how to love my wife. And, and I see that, and there are times I'm confessing I don't do it. I don't know about you. I know you, you probably do better than me. But In my time in ministry, I've had a lot of people come, whether it be for marriage counseling, financial counseling, counseling, uh, relationship counseling. Sometimes they just have a situation at work and they, they, they come because some reason God has called me to be a preacher and a minister and a pastor. And so they come seeking biblical advice. And a lot of times people have come and, and they've sat in my office and they'll say, okay, what's going on? And, and they'll tell me and, and it breaks my heart when it's, it's married couples and they're talking about, you know, they've had these issues going on and, and it's gotten to the point where, you know, it's, it's got to change or we're done. And I was thinking, man, if only we would seek God out before we got into this mess. If only we humbled ourselves and said, all right, God, I know it's tough, but I'm going to do it. Then we wouldn't find ourselves in a mess. But as I sat in these counseling sessions and people have been pouring out their hearts and, and coming into tears and like, I just don't know what to do. See, that's what lack of faith does. It puts us in a mess where things are no longer clear. It's just confusing. And we can't see the light. We, just, we can't understand how we got here and how we can get out of this. But God gives us his word as our guide, our instruction book on how to live the life he wants us to live, the best life possible. And then I sit there and they pour out and I said, okay, so let's go to the Bible. And if it's a married couple, I said, okay, let's see what God's word says, how you should be treating your wife and, and how you should be treating your husband. If it's dealing with money, I said, okay, let's go to the word of God. And what does God say how we should handle our money? They always love it when I, when I start with first. He starts with, you should, are you tithing? That's, that's, that question makes most people uncomfortable. Are you tithing? And, and the majority of people I've had financial conversations with, it's always a no. It's always a no. And it's always rational. And like, well, Pastor, we are barely getting by now, and you want us to put 10% that we don't have into an offering plate? But I look in the word of God and I look at Malachi and God says, when I bring the full tithe, the whole tithe, he will open up the heavens so much that I will know what to do with it. Am I going to trust him at that? Am I going to trust him that even though my math doesn't add up, God's math is better? Am I going to trust God that I, that I should sacrifice my pride and my ego so I can love my wife the way Christ loved the church? 
Well, that's not being a man. According to God, it is. See, we find ourselves in situations because we hear what God says, but we are unlike this royal official. When God's word that comes in power and Jesus says, go, that royal official went. But we hear the word of God and we wrestle like, ah, God, I don't know. I don't know if that will work for me. God's ways are not our ways. And his word is countercultural to almost everything we grew up learning. Jesus defined the blessed life, the life that is truly joyful. This is how he defined it. Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are humble, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, those who are persecuted. That doesn't make sense. Jesus said that we should not be people who judge. We should not jump to conclusions on people. He says we shouldn't store up worldly treasures. We shouldn't worry. Really? But it's so easy to worry. But see, Jesus is trying to instruct us, and God is trying to instruct us through His Word so we can live the life that God created us to live. And it's going to get uncomfortable at times because God is setting you apart from this world. See, when I'm saved, I'm justified. I'm clear. I'm clean of my sin, just as if it never happened in the first place. When I come to faith in Christ, justification happens. And then what God does is He wants to be our shepherd and guide and lead us. He, he wants to sanctify us. That's what the Bible says. It's to set us apart from this world so that we're different, so people can look at the fruit coming out of our life and say, wow, there's something about you that is different and I can see your faith just being lived. Coming to church is not a representation of your faith. At least not in America. It's living out God's word. Jesus says, your son lives, and the man went. The Bible tells us in James chapter 1, verse 22, is that we should be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's a question that I was wrestling with all week, and now I did to invite you into the wrestling match. Is there anything God has been telling me to do, and I've been failing to do it? Is there anything God has been telling me to start, and I haven't started? Or God has been telling me to stop, and I haven't stopped? Is there an action, a habit that I have carried with me, and God has clearly put it upon my heart and put conviction there that this needs to stop and I just won't do it. Am I going to humble myself and you say, okay, you're God. You're God. And I, I don't know why you want me to do this or not do this, but you're God, so I'm going to be obedient. Trust me, I don't have it all, all right. I don't get it right all the time. I'm, I'm sure... I'm a jerk husband at times. You know, I get hangry too. So, <laughs> But I want to get better. And this, this royal official had to trust God. He had to trust Jesus' word. No other explanation. Are we going to be that humble of a church that when God says, here it is, we're going to be like, okay. No more explanation needed. If that's what you want us to do. 
If that's what you want me to do, I'm in. This man may not have got what he wanted. He wanted Jesus to come. He may not have got what he expected. It may not have happened when he thought it should happen or how he was picturing it in his head. But you know what? When he just trusted God, he got his heart's desire. He got his heart's desire. So we just give control over to God. The final thing I want us to take before we leave this morning is look in verse 53. The father realized that at this very hour, which Jesus had told him, your son will live, so he himself believed along with his whole household. Now, if this man was the only individual that went to see Jesus, the only individual who heard what Jesus said, the only individual who had that moment where he had to live out his faith in what Jesus said happened, then how does an entire household come to know Jesus? He had to have shared. He had to have shared. He had to tell him, oh, I went there, and this is what he said, and this is what he did, and this is how it happened. And his whole household, we're told, believed. And what we take away in our relationship with God and our living out in faith and our having a humble heart is we are to be witnesses of the miraculous. This man worked in Herod's court. Herod was fascinated with Jesus, but he was fascinated with Jesus, the miracle worker, not Jesus, the son of God. He thought Jesus did some cool stuff and he wanted him to be around, but when Jesus didn't do that for him, he got bored with him. This man lived in a world in which pagan rituals and pagan worship was rampant. And yet he made this choice that I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I'm going to place my faith, and I imagine this man was going to face ridicule. He had, a, he had a potential of losing his position in this world, but he didn't care because he encountered the power of God through Jesus Christ. Nothing else mattered. And so he shares with his entire household. This man became so overwhelmed by the power of God that manifested itself through Jesus Christ, he couldn't shut up about it. We are to be witnesses to the miraculous. The greatest miracle that ever happened, that's ever recorded, is Jesus rising from the grave. We can be forgiven for our sins by nothing we have done, but that he paid it all. And so we are to be witnesses of the miraculous. How did that change you? How, do, how does that impact you today? How, do, how does that change your outlook in life? Trust me, one of the greatest miracles that you can ever be used for is to lead someone into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the greatest miracle you can ever encounter. The greatest miracle you can ever be a part of. And God invites you and me to be a part of that. Not only does he invite us, he enables us to do it. To change somebody's eternal destination from hell to heaven. To change someone from an enemy of God to a child of God. God wants to use you to share what Jesus has done for you. He invites you to take part in the miraculous, but it begins with a humble heart. Humble hearts are good because, you know, you're like, well, I can't do that. I don't know what to say. That's a good start. That's, that's humility right there. But then it's a response like Isaiah, here I, here I am, send me. This book has power. It's the word of God written down for us to enable us to do what God has left us on this earth to do until he calls us home. And God is inviting you, he's inviting me,
to take part in this miraculous adventure. And I'm just going to trust God. God said he's going to give me the words to say when I need to say them. God says he's given me everything for godliness that I need. God, God says that I'm not alone, that he's with me to the end of the age. Am I going to trust and have faith in the word of God and go out and proclaim it so that others can believe in what I've already known? But maybe you're here this morning and where the Spirit is speaking to you, I love and hate conviction. Love and hate it. Hate it because it makes me uncomfortable. Love it because it reminds me I'm a child of God. And the only reason I'm convicted is because the Spirit's convicting my heart. And maybe you're here this morning and God is convicting you because there's something in your life or something you're doing or something you're not doing that God has specifically told you and you've been disobedient. Would you be willing to come and kneel before the Father? He already knows. He's not going to be surprised. And just apologize. It's called repentance. <clears throat> Maybe you're here this morning and you need to take part in the greatest miracle ever. You need to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth and he created us people for a relationship with him. The Bible is also very clear that every single individual on this planet, every single individual who's ever lived and will live is a sinner. And sin separates us from God. And we can't be good enough. We can't go to church enough. We can't sing enough. We can't even read the Bible enough to take that sin problem away. It is only through Jesus Christ. But God loves you so much, wants a relationship with you so much, that he sent his son Jesus to die a death you could not, pay a debt you could not, and rise again so that you could be forgiven. The Bible says, when I believe God loves me that much and believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again, I need to confess it. I need to confess it. That's to make it publicly known. Maybe this is your faith moment right here. The public confession of Jesus Christ. Well, what will people think if I walk down that aisle? Who cares? Who cares? Confessing Jesus Christ. And when you do, you're saved. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe that's the the place you need to be? Are you going to have faith that God has his best for you and he's calling you to a relationship with him? Are you going to have faith to lay whatever it is at his feet and be done with it, walk away, trusting his word? I'm going to ask Bridget to come back up. Jason, come up as well. Um, you can come and talk to Jason. If you want to invite Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, just come and let Jason know and, and he'll pray with you and talk with you. If you just need to come and kneel before the Father, you don't even have to look at Jason. <laughs> Just come and kneel. But we're going to sing a song of invitation. Before we do, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you're involved. You're involved in us. You care for us. You love us. Your word says that you know the plan you have for us. It's for good. It's for our welfare. It's for our advantage and to give us a hope and a future. Father, I pray that in this moment that we hear your word and we respond the way you need us to respond. That we are not hearers only, but doers. I thank you for this incredible morning. I thank you for loving us. I thank you for everyone who's here this morning. Father, in this time, this place where we come to just lay things at your feet or, or for an individual who, who needs to begin a relationship with you, Lord, let them just step out on faith. Let them respond 
in faith in this moment, not caring about what other people think or even what they may say, Father, just to run to you into your arms. I thank for your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your faithfulness. As we come this time to lift you up in praise, let us not only sing songs, but let our hearts be a moment of praise before you. Forgive me if I failed you in any way this morning, Lord. Praise all in the name of Jesus.